listeners, welcome to episode one of Not So Lucid Affairs. This podcast, like its name, will be about controversies and cases that are not very lucid. In this first episode, we will talk about one such tech ethical controversy, the case of Dr. Timnit Gebru. Dr. Gebru is an AI scientist who works in the field of data activism and is one of the most popular data activists. She was hired by Google to be an outspoken AI critic and was recently fired for the same, which caused a huge outrage in the online community and sparked a conversation about unethical AI and the future implications. She was fired for criticizing one of the AI language models in her paper, a model that Google was developing then, and the reason Google stated for firing her was that there wasn't enough peer or literature review on the paper for her to publish it. Now, being fired for doing your job or being fired for not having enough literature review seems absurd, but let's see what this criticism was that got her fired. In her research paper, she pointed out that training large AI models consumes huge amounts of power and that they are not very eco-friendly. They leave large carbon footprints, sometimes as much as a plane trip from NYC to San Francisco. And we need to keep in mind that these models are trained and retrained multiple times. They said, and I quote, it is past time for researchers to prioritize energy efficiency and cost to reduce negative environmental impact and inequitable access to resources. They also said that these large language models are trained on exponentially increasing amounts of text, which means that the researchers need to collect all the data they can from the internet. So there is a big risk that racist, sexist, and otherwise abusive language will be in this training data. And an AI model that is taught to see racist language as normal is obviously really bad. And researchers thought that this was a big problem. And apart from that, they also saw some more subtle problems, which was like how language plays an important role in social change, like the Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movement. And they tried to establish a new anti-sexist and anti-racist vocabulary, but an AI model that was trained on these huge amounts of data from the internet will not be attuned to the little nuances of this vocabulary that is new and will not produce or interpret language in line with these cultural norms. And it also fails to capture that the norms of countries and people who have less or no access to the internet. So there would be a smaller linguistic footprint on light from these cultures. And the result would be that this AI generated language will be homogeneous and reflecting the practices of only the richest countries and communities of the world. And because these training data sets are so large, it's hard to inspect them and check for these biases. They said a methodology that relies on data sets too large to document is therefore inherently risky. And while documentation allows for potential accountability, undocumented training data perpetuates harm without recourse. And today, my guest speaker, Anita Klingel, and I will be discussing this case of Dr. Gabru, along with algorithms, how they work, what do these biases mean, and what we can do to prevent this sort of bias and hold these big tech giants accountable. Anita, welcome to episode one of Not So Lucid Affairs. So why don't we begin with, can you tell us um, about what you do and what is your field of research? So I started um, focusing on the whole ethics and algorithm issue when I worked for Bertelsmann Foundation, which is one of the large foundations in Germany. And they had a new project on the ethics of algorithm. And I really recommend their website because they're doing tremendous work and they're on the frontier of of a field in, in Germany, at least from the perspective of an NGO. And the topic, because the discrepancy between how much algorithms shape our daily lives already and and the 
how little we know about how they do it and, and who gets to decide how they do it, that fascinated me. And I start with a topic and I have um, published both in research and in what we will call policy papers ever since. And I'm now with a consultancy that works with public service institutions, um, which I find particularly interesting because public service has a larger responsibility to do this right, because you cannot escape their judgment. You know, if you don't like Google, you go to, I don't know, whatever competitor. If you don't like your job agency, well, too bad for you, but that's the one job agency you have, so you're stuck. So again, I, I think it's vital that people are informed about how algorithms shape us and how little of it is sci-fi and how much of it is already happening as we speak. Yes. It's, it's important to me that there's no evil genius stroking their cat in the background of all this. It's no evil intention. It's just not thought through well. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous German philosopher, I don't know if you've heard of Hannah Arendt, and she, she coined the phrase, uh, the banality of evil, because she was surprised, she um, observed Nazi Germany, and she was surprised how little people were actually evil, how many bureaucrats simply did their job without thinking one step further. And mm-hmm. they organized deportation the same way they organized, I don't know, delivery of books, it was just a logistics task at hand. And I feel the same is happening, and I have to be very careful here with comparison with Nazi Germany, because that's something that's overdone. So I'm not saying this is Holocaust. I'm just saying that the banality of the Yeah, people not thinking through what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And it's having huge implications. And not because someone is is evil, but because they don't think ahead. Or they're not diverse enough, which... Mm -hmm. Because they're never in that situation to be able to think about that. So they don't know better. Yeah. I don't know if you've read the uh, Invisible Women book, Caroline Criado Perez. No, I haven't. It's it's perfect because it illustrates, and regardless of algorithms or not, it illustrates cases where projects or processes were designed for men. Example, the security belts in cars are designed on male bodies because the typical crash test dummy is male. Yes. So women have a 20% higher probability to die in a car crash because the security belt wasn't designed for our bodies. Same goes for medicine that is tested predominantly with white males because with women, our hormone cycles would mess up results. Yeah, I have dude. read about that a little bit um, and about how um, medicines are tasted on certain races only when they're developed initially because they're developed in sometimes a first world country. And a lot of these symptoms look different on people of color. Um, and so doctors sometimes cannot even diagnose people correctly because the, d- the disease might be same, but the symptoms are not visible on brown skin as much as on white skin. And these kinds yeah. of problems happen all the time because of the lack of diversity. Just simply, it's just the lack of diversity and nothing else yes. because there's no bad intentions. They want to treat everyone, but they just don't know how to treat everyone because they don't have that population sample pre- present with them. And that, that's what you coined so perfectly that it's they, they are, we're never in the situation. There are these um, skin uh, scanners who automatically detect skin irritations. And as any facial recognition system, they don't work well on brown or dark skin. Which is, it, it makes sense because they weren't tested on them. So yeah. And the training data is predominantly white skin. So the algorithm has learned that skin is white. Yeah, and that 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 sort of brings us to our topic today with Timnit Gibru. Um, yeah. And when I initially reached out to you about uh, discussing this, you said that you don't have enough information um, about that to discuss it. Um, and I don't think I do either, but from what is present, I do wanna ask you a few questions. Um, so she um, said, she wrote a research paper and I sent you that article about how they mentioned the research paper that this uh, had several ethical implications in developing this AI. 
One was the e ecological impact that it would have because it's not eco-friendly, the carbon footprint it leaves. And Google and other big tech giants never see this side of um, their ethical corporate policies that this might not be good for the environment. Even tech is not good for the, for the environment, yes. And, and one reason was that, and the other one was that their AI also had some racial bias that she pointed out. Um, and people assumed that because it had racial bias and she pointed it out, she was fired. But then Google later said that was not the case. Um, there wasn't enough peer review or literature review um, for her to just publish that paper and that she was fired for that. Um, however, um, that's a little extreme to fire someone over not having literature review for a research paper that they did. So what is your opinion um, on that? Because she was specifically hired for that function to, to point out ethical bias. Um, several things have happened or I've read stuff since we first talked about this and I, I will give you a, a multi-layered answer if I may. So on her individual case, um, several of her colleagues have spoken out and um, they have said that their own paper has never been held to such high standards. So clearly there was a double standard and if her own colleagues say that I'm inclined to believe them because they don't have an agenda. Um, the second thing is the number of Googlers who now support her has risen to almost 2,000. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not fishy. The reason I was insecure was I read that article prior to our conversation, mm -hmm. and it didn't strike me as critical enough for Google to risk an outlash like this, because they must have known that this would have would become public. I think they underestimated the, the mm -hmm. density of it but they must have known that this won't look good. So why would they fire someone over an article that from my perspective claimed stuff we already knew? Mm -hmm. And this January, Google came out with a press statement that they did a large scale language model, which was the type of algorithms uh, Timothy Gebru focused on with a trillion parameters. So the sheer scale of this and the fact that they published this in January meant it must have been in the making mm -hmm. at the time when Gebru wrote the article on how this specific kind of algorithm is dangerous. Yes. And now I get why they were willing to fire her over this. So this, from my perspective, gives the entire story more credibility because now I understand why Google would do this. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know if, if it's racist from my point of view to only believe this now, but I was skeptic at first because of course, being fired always leaves my blood and I, I'm careful to, to believe one side without having heard the other one. Yes. But the more I read about this, the more I go for, yes, she probably, something smelled fishy and now the entire ocean is barely up. Yeah. Because and initially, it, we we only knew her side of the story because as soon as she was fired, she made a statement about it and we knew nothing about what Google had done. So I can see how that would, I mean, as a neutral person, even if you want to, you have to choose not to make an opinion um, yeah. right away. Yeah. So I was careful, but... The more I read into it, the more I, I feel like that there was a story there. And from a, from a systemic perspective, this showcases how we cannot let companies regulate themselves. And this is why I do not like the term ethics, because from a framing perspective, ethics is very soft. Ethics is something that you can choose to follow or not. Yes. I'm strongly more like guidelines. For, yeah, yeah. It, it's a nice to have. You know, everyone has ethics. We all do. Um, I'm advocating for regulation and oversight because the case showcase, to me showcases very clearly that if the company doesn't like what you're doing ethically, you're gone. And if Timothy Gebro didn't have such a huge follower bubble that brought this case to daylight, if she had been someone with, I don't know, 10 followers, we would have totally lost this story. Yeah. No and, one would have known and they would have covered yeah. it up. Yeah. And she would have been just another angry black woman, you know, or brown woman. And everyone would have said, yeah, she got fired. Now she's mad and she's throwing stuff at Google. 
Yeah. Such a life. So again, I don't understand how we can leave this to companies to choose what to do research on and then to retract papers. I mean, I'm wondering what other papers got retracted where women didn't refuse to retract the paper when Google asked them to. There must be a vault somewhere where they hide away the articles that women gave in to retracting. There is so, a very good probability that all that is true, that you know there were so many other things that we are not even aware of and that are totally happening right now and maybe even are already inculcated in how we live and what we do. Like yeah. they might already be affecting us. And I understand that it's hard to regulate something that's evolving so fast. And a lot of policymakers have astonishingly little insight into the entire topic. And living in my comfy little algorithm bubble, I already always assume that people A, know what algorithms are, at least on a basic, like it's like a recipe level. Um, they don't. And B, that we all agree on the fact that these things need regulation. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't, as the EU comfortably demonstrates every month. Um, we don't agree on the fact that these things need regulation. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to discuss this, because if Timnit Gebru hadn't stepped forward mm -hmm. to tell her story, we wouldn't have an opportunity to again, state the obvious, from my perspective, to policymakers to please, please step up. And I, yeah, like you said, I think it was always a risk and everyone sort of knew that AI could be racially biased or they could, uh, AI could racially profile people and these softwares could be used for so many different things because AI is going to be used in, I don't know, I think every aspect of life in the next decade. Um, it is really important that we see to it that it's not, it doesn't have these biases. And we study that. And I don't think a lot of people do because it wasn't even, it, I don't think anyone even notices that that's happening. Because I saw the um, little TikToks even where two sisters, they were black um, and two of them had um, an iPhone of it, the facial recognition. And one sister could open her sister's phone and they were not twins. And I was like, okay, well, that's, um, I guess that's just bad facial recognition, but it's not bad facial recognition because it, it didn't happen with white people, I suppose. And so that's where I think the racial profiling comes in. And in, with an iPhone, it's funny that your sister opened your phone, but maybe if, um, I don't know, like law enforcement was using some sort of AI that, that did this profiling um, and that would be really, really terrible. And I mean, that's really terrible to think about already. And I can just see it happening if they just ignore these sorts of research and papers just because they want to make profit. They're corporate and I understand that their main goal is to make profit, but at what cost? And again, it's it's not all bad intention. I, I like the example, I don't know if you've heard the story of the French uh, university system France has um, implemented an algorithm like years ago, which sorts students to their favorite universities. And graduates, high school graduates in France have figured out that the closer you live to Paris, the more likely you are to go to one of the elite universities in a centralized country like France, all the elite universities are in Paris. So someone with um, a good degree from Lyon or Marseille will have less likely chance to go to um, I don't know, Sorbonne than someone from Paris with a worse degree. And they sued the ministry for the code to find out why. The ministry refused. They lost the case. They printed 500 pages of code and sent them through snail mail. The students scanned 500 papers, we're talking of, of paper pages of code, put them up to GitHub, and they figured out that there's a weight to the closeness of university to your hometown, which is a perfectly fine thing to do because the, the government simply wanted students to not have to pay for an extra apartment. So you're preferred for admission at a university close to your home. This is good. Problem, if your home is Lyon, and you want to go to Sorbonne, this weight will kill you. 
Yeah. And this is a good example of, of a bias that was intentionally implemented. And it's a good intention, just not thought through. Yeah. And I see a lot of that happening. It wasn't we, even supposed to be a bias. It was just supposed to sort people in. Yeah. And it, 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 ought, it sought to help students from low-income families so they wouldn't have to rent an extra apartment. They could stay with their parents, lower their apartment costs. Everything was perfect, except for that it discriminated against people not living in Paris, which is a lot. And I wonder how many such algorithms already exist and what is one way to tackle this sort of um, error? There's a good example. The Austrian ministry has implemented, Austrian job agency to be precise, has implemented an algorithm that sorts uh, unemployment benefit seekers into three categories based on the probability they will find work again within the next nine months. Uh, the aim is to be more efficient, so caseworkers can focus on people who have strong needs and um, can leave those like you and me who might be unemployed for three months, but we will find a job. So we would be categorized in a high probability that will find help work again, and they can focus on the people who really need help. Perfect. And the good thing is that alongside with the original code, they published social rules. So they they were up for the debate they made it public what were the parameters what is the criteria how did they do the weighting what is the model behind all this and there was a public discussion that doesn't make it perfect but for me this is a good example of how it can work because you have to discuss it or they, to think it through with a larger um group i suppose would be one of the things to do yeah because Again, the, the people who developed this were all white, mostly male, but they recognized this and said, okay, we cannot hire brown women on short notice just for this one project. But what we can do is make the code and our decisions public and say, hey, guys out there, if you see something in here mm. that's bad for you, let us know. And there was a huge public discussion, for example, something that hit home for me. Um, women, the, the number of kids you have as a woman drastically uh, or, or, or worsens your likelihood of finding work again. Oh. Um, which is realistic. I mean, that's not even discrimination within the algorithm. That's just what the world is like. And there was a huge backlash, of course, saying that the model shouldn't represent this. And the researchers, from my perspective, rightly so, said, guys, this is what the world looks like. And of course we can make an algorithm where the number of kids is irrelevant. And by the way, for males, it was. Only oh. females got punished for having kids, which again is realistic. <laughs> um, sad, but it's realistic. Yeah, so the question is, do we need algorithm, algorithms that model the perfect world? Mm -hmm. Even if that's not what the world we live in, or do we need realistic algorithms and they will discriminate, but only because we discriminate. And to go back to Timnit Geber's article, the language model doesn't discriminate because the programmers do, the language model discriminates because within the training data, the real world training data, People humans do. discriminate, people do. Yeah. So again, the point I'm trying to make is it's very hard to regulate these algorithms because not everything, every discrimination is bad. There can be a reason to discriminate. For example, closeness to home with students or multiple kids with women. There are good reasons. We just need to discuss this. And so the Austrian example is a good example to publicly debate whether this particular discrimination is justified or not. I agree with that. But when it comes to something um, like race or gender, or when it's something this big, um, even if people do discriminate, um, what would be a way to prevent this discrimination in AI? Because of course we cannot establish a perfect world even in artificial intelligence, um, but we have to move towards it. I'm not saying there is a utopia and we should make one, um, but 
what is the way to prevent these big errors from happening? I hugely believe in the role of NGOs in, in this process. And of course, I am biased here. Um, but orgs like Algorithm Watch in Germany, um, they, they serve as a watchdog. And from my perspective, they have three distinct advantages. First, they're not a single person. So if Timnit Gebru speaks out, then the punishment is on her. You cannot fire an yes. organization. So that gives security to the people speaking truth to power. Um, the second is they're independent because they're financed through donations and through state funding. So they don't depend on any single organization. And the third one is that they're embedded in a network of researchers um, and they're part of the community without being part of a specific organization that produces the algorithm. So they don't need to sell anything. This and is really cool because I had no idea that NGOs like this even exist. And I had no idea that something in IT exists like this. Like it's, it's relatively new. Don't let me lie, four to five years, I think. But it's made huge projects come true. And one of my favorites is, I don't know if you've met Schufa in Germany. They're a rating agency for private persons. So any contract with, with renting to your mobile phone goes through Shufa and they collect data on how your payments come along, whether you pay regularly. They're really vital in Germany because you cannot rent an apartment without Shufa. You cannot um, sign a mobile contract without Shufa. So they have a huge role and they're a private company. So oversight is scarce. And they don't hand out their algorithm on how they judge people. And what Algorithm Watch in cooperation with others did is they asked individuals like you and me to retrieve their data, send it to them, and they reverse engineered the algorithm. So if you had this data set and got that result from Shufa and I had with that data set got this result, they recalculated what an algorithm would have to look like that produced these results. Oh, okay. And that's a bloody smart technique from my perspective, pardon my French. And they, I think they got close. I, I don't know how close they got to the real algorithm because again, Shufa states that they don't want to publish it. But it was interesting that something like this could happen. Like people could donate their data to a watchdog organization and they would reverse engineer the algorithm and see what kind of discriminations it could produce. That is way cool. Another example are the CVs that, that get sent out, I think, annually. Same CV, only the name is changed. So once one, one CV goes out with a German name and one CV goes out with, a, let's say, Turkish or Arabic name. Mm -hmm. Everything else, every qualification, every entry in the CV is the same. And they measure how many invitations for an interview, for a job oh, interview. Oh, I have said. read about that one. And the, yeah. the number of interviews that the people who were non-German got was, was significantly lesser than the number of German speakers or German people, native German people. Um, yeah. And I honestly, it's not surprising to me. It's, I mean, it's crazy that the AI does that too, but at the same time, it's not surprising to me because people do. Um, and having experienced it myself over there, I feel like, okay, I guess it makes sense. Like I wasn't even offended as much as I was like, okay, I'm not surprised. And that surprised me, the emotion I felt. And yeah. like, like you said, it's not like they intend to do this, but it's just the information available to the AI because people do. There's, there's a nice story about a, a huge printing company that uh, developed an AI to find the perfect employee. So the AI scanned all the applications and it was trained on data from the last 50 years. So they sent them the CV of employees who had been successful within the company. And the AI figured out criteria for who makes a good company employee. And they implemented the algorithm and everything went smoothly. And after a while, they realized that somehow they got only male applicants. What happened to the women? Turns out in historic data from the last 50 years, the key criteria to being a successful employee 
was having a Y chromosome, being male, because they didn't hire women 20 to 30 years ago. Yeah. And they never thought about the fact that if they use historic data, then the entire bias of the 70s comes back. Comes right to back. Yeah. And again, no bad intention. And they realized it and they corrected it and they apologized. But by then they had like six to nine months of not even interviewing women because in the 70s, they didn't. That, that's <laughs> insane because it's, it's something that little that, that it's so trivial. It's just one criterion that they overlooked. Yeah. And, and in hindsight, everyone goes, duh. But in hindsight. Yeah. yeah. That's that's crazy. So things like this, things so small can affect algorithms. And when they're making algorithms this big, like um, Timmy Gabru said, having these little biases would affect million because it's millions of people because it's a company like Google who literally every person in the world uses. Mm -hmm. So this could have some very negative implications and I can now see why they fired her. But when they issued an apology, it wasn't even much of an apology. Um, uh, do you know what they said? Yeah, yeah, I, I read it. It's, it's cringy. So Sundar Pichai literally just said that, sorry for the way things happened, but it didn't apologize for what happened. Um, and it is mm -hmm. ironic to me because he's Indian. I'm like, you're a person of color. This is going to be affecting in a couple of years. And it's sad to me that you just overlooked something like this. And, and not only overlooked, but openly approved, because the moment yeah. he's not apologizing for what happened, he's sending the message to every other employee to please keep on doing this. It's okay. Yeah. And again, to your question of how can we address this, monopoly is a huge issue within mm -hmm. AI, because there are currently three to four major players sharing the market. And we need more than that because competition is key to diversity. They have no incentive to be diverse. If there is no competitor, they can be lazy as they choose to. But their market is diverse and I feel like that should be enough incentive to force them to be diverse, but I guess they can make profits without it, uh, without being diverse. And that's like, that's why they're like, why should we do it? There was a smart article on Wired um, that said that the problem is that the benefits and the costs of implementing discriminatory AI are very separated. It benefits the elite, in that case, white males, see Google employees, and the costs are on minorities. And these minorities often don't have the economic weight to make their pleas heard. Yeah, or the, the voice, because a lot of times they're just ignored because they're minorities. And that's not where the money is being made. So I'm not sure that the market will really change that. Which is so sad. And, and especially in corporate America, because there are no regulations as such when it comes to business. It's, it's all business. Mm -hmm. um, and, business. And, and they are producing technology and softwares that the whole world uses. Um, which is so scary to think about because whether or not I live there, it is going to affect me. And there's very little that you and I can do apart from advocacy. And that's something that frustrates me in my daily work because we do podcasts and we give presentations and there are books being written and there are TED Talks being held. And I feel like this entire bubble is in arms. And outside of the bubble, everyone goes like, Algo what? Even I didn't like... I'm 22 years old. I'm not even like that old. Like if my dad who is 50 didn't know about AI, it's okay. It's normal. He doesn't use anything and he doesn't know how to, but I'm 22 years old and I didn't even know how much all of this was already happening in my life, like in my own life. And I just realized that after we had this digitalization class with Lucas and um, ethics and digitalization, and I thought, whoa, these things are happening right now. It's not a decade from now. It's not a couple decades from now. It's happening right now. And so I need to know where my data, where my information is going, what it's being used for and what they're doing with it and also how it will affect 
And I just, I didn't care for it. I was like, oh, what are they going to do? At most, they'll use it for advertisement. Okay, whatever. But and the problem is that it's our dad's job to regulate because by the time that we are in a position to regulate, this will all be history. And what scares me is that your dad and my dad are the ones currently in a position to do something about it and they don't know how to spell algorithm. Yeah. No, no, no offense to my dad if he <laughs> ever happens to listen to this, but... Oh, this um, so one? I, I, no chance my dad <laughs> will listen to a podcast. <laughs> He's stuck with his radio. But that's the fact. He's stuck with his radio. He doesn't even know what a podcast is, but men his age are in power. Women our age aren't. Yeah. And, and even in, in every country, it's like that. It's people who don't know what this technology is making the laws for this technology. And how does that make sense? Um, I don't know if, you, if you've watched this ever, but there was this one interview that blew up on the internet about Mark Zuckerberg answering the question to an older senator about how Facebook works. And I was like, whoa, these are the people deciding our future. And they have no idea how Facebook works and they're supposed to make laws for it. And, and Mark Zuckerberg was just, he was so smug, smiling, like you have no idea what is happening. And I thought, wow, okay, so this is probably gonna be our generation in a couple decades um, when there is more technology that we don't know of. And I feel like, so one of the most important things right now to me is that there should be more digital literacy. Yes, yes. Amen. Because to, to question people, you need to know what you're questioning. And there's a problem with, with, with the incentivization here because those who know what they're doing go to Google because no one can match the salaries that Google is offering yeah. these people. So no one will go into policy with a tech background if they can sell what they know to Google. I mean, I wouldn't go into policy or politics if, if I had an offer from Google. So who's capable and who understands the problem goes left, swipes left on, on AI Tinder. And everyone like me, who has a social scientist background and just dabbles into the issue, but I cannot code. So I, I will not change anything. I swipe right and go into politics and hold up my sign and say, Houston, we have a problem. I don't know anything about code. So I'm, I'm desperately looking for people. And that's why Timid Gebru to me was, was a, a role model here. Someone who actually understood the issue in depth, who coded herself, who, who knew how to make these things happen and still advocate, advocated for regulation and for ethics, however soft. And someone like her being silenced means that the likes of me have no chance because if she isn't heard with all her expertise or, or there's a misincentivization for people who actually know their stuff to swipe the wrong way. Yeah. And that's one of the things that she said herself that I was the safest. I was hired by Google to make these decisions for Google to point out the errors in their AI uh, and ethical bias and racial bias. And I was really safe with that job. Like that was my job. And, I, and they could not fire me for it. And if this is how I was treated, I cannot even imagine a junior employee, um, they would probably not even raise their voice because they would be treated so much worse. Yeah. And that, that's again, something that I think would help to, to give whistleblowers an anonymous point of contact to drop their information because the way whistleblowers are currently treated, think Snowden, think Assange, doesn't really embolden anyone else to step forward because the personal repressions are very deterring. And it yeah. takes a lot of bravery to speak up. And I think the reason she spoke up was because she knew that she had the authority and the power to do so. And that she was safe and still she wasn't and the other scientists that were that were writing this with her decided to stay anonymous because they were scared about their jobs at google which says a lot already it's just almost like research censorship and again from a company perspective from google's perspective i understand that it's not their job to be very welcoming to criticism 
And that's why we need an outside organization, a watchdog, a regulator, an oversight entity, someone whose job it is to, to look into this, but the people need to be capable because if, yeah. if they hire people like us, then we're very aware of the problem, but I wouldn't spot a discrimination anywhere, like in real code. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't see the incentivization apart from research currently to do this, this watchdog function, to, to do the job of a watchdog for AI. And even if there was an outsider analyzing all of this, they would not make this information available to them because they don't want that information to get out. And that's why she was fired. And I feel like in corporate America, it would be so hard to regulate something like this uh, with even an outside organization. And for that, I feel like it is the people who need to make this decision. Us as voters, us as people need to demand to know what happens with our data and what kind of um, artificial intelligence or technology we're using and how it'll affect us. But people don't know how to ask these questions because they don't know what's happening. And that again brings me back to the whole digital literacy thing because where I live at the moment, like in India, most people don't, like most people who are over the age of 40 don't know how to use a smartphone. Like my mother still struggles with online banking and I have to constantly show her, you press this button on the app to transfer money. You do this. And it is um, because they've never, they've never done it before. It's not their fault, but they were just not, they're not used to it. And that's the thing that um, our current prime minister is on this big mission to digitalize India. He's almost 70. He's like 60 something and he cannot use technology himself, but it's one of his like big initiatives to digitalize the entire country. And I think that it's pretty useless because you can make everything digital, but who's going to teach the people how to use it? There's a very nice quote that neatly summarizes this. If you digitalize a shitty process, you get a shitty digital process. Yes, exactly. I feel there's a lot of digital shitty processes around where people just took the analog process mm. and copy pasted it to a digital platform without thinking about it. And, and I'm, I'm very careful by now, anytime someone mentions digitalization or we're gonna digitalize that because I go, oh, <laughs> this is gonna be hard. Like take teaching. Mm -hmm. In Germany with the lockdown, professors all over the country were in rambles to find out how this online teaching thing worked because never before were they in need mm -hmm. of, of technology. And now they're screaming, they're, they're filming their screens from their mobile. It looks like Blair Witch Project. <laughs> and, and, and that's what they're able to do. And there are so many brilliant, innovative concepts like Lucas's Make a Podcaster. You can do amazing things with digital technology. Just please don't use chalk to write on your screen. It's, I think it was, it's because that's just what they've done this entire time. And I'm not blaming the entire gener generation, but I feel like in the past decade or two, technology advanced so fast that people could not process what was happening around them and they did not deem it necessary to move on with technology. And now they're suffering because it moved on faster than them. Have you read Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker to the Galaxy? I have read so much about it. I was going to start it um, this month, actually. It's amazing. And he has this, this beautiful quote that every technology that existed when you were born is a natural part of the world. Any technology that was developed before your 35th birthday is the cool hot shit and you can build your entire career on it. Any technology that was developed after your 35th birthday is hell, unnecessary, and no one ever needs that. <laughs> That's correct. That's how older people think. <laughs> As someone approaching 35, I have a few years left, but the closer I get to 35, the more I go, uh-oh. That <laughs> I part of life is coming closer. <laughs> yeah, I don't understand Snapchat and TikTok anymore. You know, I, I write good old messages. And I remember 
remember that when I introduced my mom to WhatsApp, she asked me why couldn't I just write a text message instead? And I would be like, oh, come on, mom. And now my little sister is giving me voice messages. And I'm like, why cannot I write a WhatsApp instead? <laughs> and my little sister goes, oh, come on. And I'm like, okay, I'm really, really going on 35. And I understand how I how my parents could not keep up with technology because I cannot keep up with the evolution so of messages. Perhaps it's not people and their digital illiteracy entirely because people try, but maybe the pace at which the technology is moving forward is just extremely fast. It's just rapid. And imagine I, I started out, out on um, StudiVZ in Germany. Then I switched to Facebook from ICQ to Skype then came WhatsApp, then came Telegram. Now Telegram is, is almost dead. Now I'm switching to Signal and Threema. And I, I feel a certain fatigue. No more WhatsApp? <laughs> no, no, After no. After the I've, privacy policy? Yeah, but I stopped two years ago. I, I um, both oh. Facebook and WhatsApp. So um, it was before the current craze, but for exactly the same reasons as you did. But soon I found, I found out what they did with my data, I was out. And now Telegram is doing uh, AI-generated naked women images, and I started stopping Telegram. Yeah, they have a bot where they can send your picture, and the AI will automatically generate a realistic picture of you naked. And uh, men use that. And I have started to use an avatar instead of my real picture, because they can do with that avatar what they want. But the, there's a part of revenge porn that's AI-generated. And that scares the wow, living. that's crazy. Yeah, it's so. Uh, be careful with your picture out there. I, sh I yeah, I didn't. I had no idea this was even. See, like I, I'm not even. Like I said, I'm not even like 50 like my dad. But like some of these things, I don't even know exist. Yeah, and and it's crazy to think about that AI also can contribute to something like this. Um, and so I feel like we need to be really careful with our data, of course, but. Again, like I feel like all of my solutions, whenever I think about it, is, is that awareness. Awareness is the only way out. And yes. so people and just need to do that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and restriction. And, and it's hard. Like when I deleted my Facebook account and, and my WhatsApp, um, I felt excluded because a lot of communication is via Facebook. I have a non-German part of my family that I completely lost contact to for a few months because they were all on Facebook. And, and it's so, so the moment you decide to be aware and to restrict yourself and to not use real pictures and to not use certain platforms, you lose the entire network effect that makes these platforms so attractive. Yes. And I mean, it's, I can, it's still hard for me to just leave Instagram or Facebook. Just doing a digital detox once a week is hard enough for me. I try not to use my social media on uh, Saturdays and Sundays. I don't uninstall it or anything, but I just try not to touch it so that I don't get that dopamine from social media. And I just, I do other things to engage myself. Um, and even doing that is hard enough for me. So I cannot imagine just switching platforms to something that nobody's aware of or nobody uses. Because I feel like I, I thought about leaving WhatsApp because of the um, privacy policy change um, and joining Signal, but none of the people I know use Signal. So what am I going to do on Signal? Yeah, the problem is if everyone thinks that way, then it will, so, so someone needs to start using Signal for it to become attractive. And the snowball effect is huge with network platforms. I, I am going to do that because I still haven't accepted the privacy policy because um, it, it's really weird, or I don't know if everyone does that, but um, since the last couple of years, every time I agree to any data policy, I take the time to read the entire thing before I click accept because I used to be really lazy um, when I was a teenager. I was like, oh, whatever, what are they going to do and accept everything? But lately I've been really careful and I read everything um, because one time I had this really creepy experience with Facebook where I said something and then immediately an ad popped up. And I was curious. I was like, my phone mic is probably listening to me. Um, it happens far too often to be a coincidence. So I looked at the privacy policy and how they collect my data. And they said that they do use my microphone 
for research purposes like Google and Facebook. And, uh, but it has nothing to do with the advertisements, but I can choose to switch off my microphone. So like they're hearing my conversations, which is creepy, but I'm like, but they're not relevant conversations to them. But just even just using them for advertisements by not letting me know that that's what they're, they're being used for is a breach of my trust. And I feel like there could be so much more they could do with all the sensitive data that they have. And there was a project with Spotify where Spotify took weather data from the weather app on your phone and linked it to certain music. It, it was a nice touch because on rainy days, Spotify would give you soft piano music and on sunny days, party music. Nice. But of course, they use it for advertisement. And they figured out that on rainy days, people tend to buy more online because you're stuck inside. You start to look around the internet for the pair of new shoes. And on sunny days, you won't shop that much online. So they calibrated the advertisement on Spotify to the weather app that your mobile phone was holding. And they got your moods. They, they know when you're sad. They know when you like to party. They, they know so much about your emotional state just by looking at the music you're listening to. And that's scary. At this point, I feel and like yet I, I can't just... bring myself to kill Spotify. Yeah, that's that's the dilemma. It's like I should probably not use any of that because they're just using my information. But at the same time, I I cannot just let go of it all either. And I feel like if people, if everyone who was using these platforms was more aware of what their data is being used for and like raise their voice about it somehow these companies could be held accountable. Yeah, but again, and, and maybe that's that's sort of a summary for me. Like with climate change, I'm enraged if the guilt or the blame for what's happening is put on the individual level because you and me will not change this. And similar to climate change, there are huge companies who are active in this and we need to regulate the companies because if that feature Definitely. isn't even allowed, then you and me don't have to make the individual choice to either use it or not. And so what, what but, yeah. I think we need is policymakers who are educated, not you and me. If, if our dads don't know what algorithms look like, it's okay. But if the guys interviewing Zuckerberg don't know what algorithms look like, then we have a huge problem. So we need regulation, we need oversight, we need funding for watchdog organizations, and we need incentives for smart, capable people to enter the policy sphere. And if only as an expert or a consultant, but we need the knowledge inside the political process, because as we've seen with the Zuckerberg interview, policymakers alone um, shouldn't be our only hope. Yes, but I do feel like we have a social responsibility to elect these policymakers who are aware of these things. and to elect someone who knows all this, we have to know at least 30% of it, maybe 20, 30% of it to be able to understand that, okay, this is the guy for me. This is the guy who will make these regulations and hold these companies or corporate giants accountable. We should elect the people who will do something about it. Because I, very, I feel like true. people just do not care enough. They just want to go on with their lives because they think, oh, eventually, it's going to happen. Like nobody's going to be able to do anything. So why should I be the one to do something? And you don't really have to do so much, but all you have to do is find that one person who knows it and then ask them what to do or, or learn. Yes. And that is, that is one way to do it. I'm not saying that will solve everything, but that's one step towards, um, holding these big giant companies responsible. I mean, ideally be the one person who gets elected mm -hmm. to know these things. Um, it's funny because I was taught all of this in high school. Um, in India, you're taught um, how the logarithms work. Um, mm -hmm. It's the very basic, simple model of it. Um, and we were supposed to design these in our computer classes. So we were, su we were supposed to we just made like flow charts of um, if it would be something as simple as the, is the apple red or green? Um, if the apple is red, then yes. If yes, then this. If no, then this. So we had to make these flow charts which were the most basic model of these logarithms. And we were taught that in high school. 
Um, but I never took notice of it because I was like, oh, this is, why, why am I studying this? This is irrelevant. Why am I learning flowcharts? They don't matter. And now flowcharts decide what I see on my phone. I didn't even have a smartphone then. <laughs> yeah, but in my case, it didn't even exist, but that makes me sound very old, <laughs> but same thing. And um, now they're teaching sixth grade kids coding um, in school in India with the new education policy that they made last year. Um, they're going to change the entire curriculum and digital learning and coding is going to be one of the things that even middle schoolers learn here. A good um, metaphor for learning algorithms are kids because neural networks are called that for a reason. And I'm, I'm always astonished to see my, I have a three-year-old now. And when she learned how to talk, I remember the scene from the park where she saw a dog and mm -hmm. she pointed at the dog and correctly called it dog. And then the dog jumped into the water and she looked at me all confused and said, duck? Because she had learned animal in water is a duck. Animal on a, a dog cannot be in the water. So it was a miscategorization. And the same thing happens when an algorithm learns. Mm -hmm. So one of the jobs I'm very much looking forward and I hope my daughter would, will have that job is an algorithm teacher. Someone who accompanies AI as it learns and teaches it that is good behavior, that is wrong, this is discriminatory, this is good. And I think that should be a job, an algorithm teacher, someone who helps to train young algorithms to become responsible digital citizens. I think, yeah, I think that's a really good, that's a really good um, way to sort of take it into the right direction. And it's, it's something that people like our dads understand. There would be an algorithm school where we send young AI to learn about what data to accept and what not, what humans behave like. And I think that that's a very dad compatible way of explaining what needs to be done. Because they are creating something that is so close to a person that it needs to be taught. Yeah. If, if it mirrors human intelligence, it should be treated the way we treat human intelligence. I agree. I completely agree. Um, however, something you said um, struck me that when you said that your daughter um, thought dog jumping in the pond was a duck because an animal in pond is duck. And that is the same thing that a very basic algorithm would do that if this, then that, if that, then that. And so what, what I, how my question is, is that that's so black and white. If this, then this, and if that, then that. And there's so much gray area when it comes to humans and other things that we do. And when artificial intelligence is concerned, what happens to this gray area in algorithms? Because algorithms are so black and white. Now, the, the more complexity they allow for, the better they get at understanding gray zones. And that's what happens with language models. That's why they are so huge. A trillion parameters, parameters like for this new Google, it's, it's really close to what we treat language like. And my daughter is currently learning the, the difference between a bicycle and a moped and a motorcycle. And we started with car and not a car. And now we're going for brands of cars, different kinds of cars. So you start with the black and white things like dog and duck, mm -hmm. and then you go in, you dive deep. And I think that the more complex the algorithm is, the easier it gets to teach it gray zones, like with language. Okay, that is that is good to know because I I was concerned with that. I was like, if it's so black and white. Um, it would it would make really big errors. And so I want to know what happens to these gray zones. And it's good to know that they can be managed. To a certain degree, it depends on how much data you, you take into consideration. I mean, the more complex it gets, the more likely it is to err in certain ways. So complexity, mm -hmm. of course, is an issue of its own. But I think the way that translations work, for example, is a pretty good example of, of like 
three years ago, you couldn't use Google Translate for the life of you to, to make a decent translation. And how astonishingly well does it work now? Um, it's funny that you point that out because it does really well with European languages now, but my native languages, not so much. So when I try to yeah. translate things, um, it makes really big errors. Like the meaning of the entire statement changes completely. And I think that, okay, it translates from German well. Um, so how am I supposed to explain this to someone who doesn't speak my language? But then I realized that I am one of the minority languages of the world. So, And again, it depends on the number of homepages that exist in your language, because what it does, it always translates to English. And I am a native Hungarian, so European language, and still the translation from Hungarian to German is a catastrophe or is not as good as German English because there are fewer Hungarian sites on the internet that the algorithm can learn from. Again, training data and an algorithm teacher would try to remedy this by pointing the algorithm towards good Hungarian English, Hungarian whatever sites. And, and teach it more of the Hungarian content or give it a Hungarian that book makes, or whatever. That makes a lot of sense because um, my language, there are no websites in my language, but just few websites that have a few statements in my language because it is so not widely used. It's just my state because India has 30 states and then 30 different languages and 28 of them are official state languages. And then not that many people use it. So, and everyone here speaks English. So there's no need for us to make websites in our native languages, um, which yeah. is really hard for older people who do not speak English to not have these websites. True. True. And so I guess it makes sense for Google Translate to not know the correct translations because it doesn't have enough examples to learn from. I support, I really support your idea of the algorithm teacher so much more now because then that would simplify, not simplify, but it would simplify the process of teaching AI to be closer to human intelligence. And it could make hard choices. Like, do we discriminate against women with many children or do we punish students for not living in Paris? It, a human would, recognize these hard choices and, and help make them and then it wouldn't be on the AI because what I hate in politics is the excuse that the computer did this yes Yet the computer is not a thinking entity like that's not god a person programmed this can we please not pretend that it just fell out of the sky and now it's here it, it's it was like one of those self-driving ubers when it killed a woman um they didn't know who to blame and that was like a big no big controversy on do we blame Uber, do we blame, and, and they ended up um, filing for the rider in the Uber who was looking at her phone while um, the car was self-driving because she failed to pull the emergency lever, which she was informed about, but she just clicked the terms and agreement, uh, terms and conditions or whatever, and Again, that is another thing that they make these so elaborate and so small, teeny tiny little things that you think, oh, that's probably never gonna happen for me to actually worry about it. And you don't read the whole thing. And then you can end up in a situation like this. So I feel like Uber should still be held accountable because something um, like this, a warning this big about not the emergency brakes being in the driver's control should have been more um, I don't know, explicit somewhere in the contract. There was an Italian court case heard last week where Uber was made responsible explicitly for the algorithm that distributes um, their drivers. And the algorithm allegedly punished drivers for um, taking um, the, the, the late hours, or there was something about how the, the drivers were distributed. And the case was a precedence case because the judge explicitly says that Uber as a company is held accountable for what their algorithm does. And that was a landmark, landmark case. So there's hope within the EU. I don't know if other within countries- Within the EU, I think so. Because I feel like people in Europe take their um, privacy and their data policies and even all the decisions with technology relatively seriously as compared to um, the Asian and American continent. 
that that will be our unique selling proposition that we will be the the data protection hub i mm -hmm. think that that will be uh ai made in the eu will be safe or, or ethically designed but then again everyone who doesn't want to design ethical ai will leave for the us and china so we are losing uh, a lot of brains uh, i need to get to my little human algorithm okay um, <laughs> all right but it was so good talking to you this was a really interesting conversation <laughs> all right have a good evening thank, thank you, you so you much bye it was so nice meeting you you too. Bye. And thank you, listeners. That was all for today on Not So Lucid Affairs.